Hey, before we start this episode, just want to remind you that the Fearless Woman's Guide to Starting a Business is available everywhere that you like to buy books, and you can get it in paperback, Kindle, and even as an audiobook. I'll have links on where you can purchase in the podcast notes. Okay, back onto the show. You are listening to One Broken Mom, a podcast dedicated to raising awareness about mental health, parenting, and self-improvement. I'm the host, Ami Quirconi. One Broken Mom is not a family show. It is intended for adults only and may contain adult language. Sometimes the topics are serious, but you can count on the episodes to be entertaining. Also, One Broken Mom is not offering any psychiatric or medical diagnosis. We're just here giving away useful and important information. So if you're ready to hear real talk by real people so that we can all get better together, then you're in the right place and welcome. Okay, today, everybody, I am back on with One Broken Mom and Michelle Piper. And remember, Michelle is a marriage and family therapist based out of San Diego, and she has both the personal and professional interest in working, uh, I wouldn't say exclusively, but probably pretty heavily with the adult children of narcissistic mothers and survivors of narcissistic abuse. So welcome back, Michelle. Thank you. It's good to be back. And I'm always so happy to work with you because you have a compassionate view of what it's like to be a mother and also what it's like to deal with a narcissistic mom in the family system. So I appreciate that compassionate viewpoint. Oh, awesome. You know, and I tell lots of people, and thank you for that, because um, we all had parents, <laughs> um, all of us listening, and the other piece is I've never really wanted this to be a blame game and finger pointing thing, because at the end of the day, the big key message here is that what we're talking about and sharing is not common knowledge. It's not, you know, taught you know, on a regular basis to anybody growing up, you know, how we learn to parent is by the models that we have. And we've all been shown different things through different experiences. And it's just, it really is hard to be very judgmental against people that, you know, may have behaved in ways that left us feeling badly and may, you know, are leaving some of us going through therapy to repair some of that. But I don't know, I think it's the rare, rare person who ever intended to go out and have kids and hurt them. You know, it's, it's, mm -hmm. you know, any of that injury has ever come has usually been out of just not knowing. And so coming together to talk about it in a way, um, I, I, I just did an interview, um, earlier before you and I talked, um, and we were talking at the end of the interview about, you know, mom feeling guilty. You know, I wish I could have done something better. And I thought, you know, what's a great gift is to give our parents who are feeling like if we're having these conversations with them is the gift of them knowing that it's not permanent, you know, that, and I don't think that people, and that's part of this is this change and this talking about it, this digging in and, and reflecting on it and understanding it means that we can actually undo some of the things that maybe our parents actually do feel guilty about and feel like, well, I didn't know any better. I didn't mean to do that to you. I acknowledge that something's not right right now. And I wish I could change it. And the reality is they can't, but we can, and we can, we can do that for them. And so if that helps with a compassionate conversation with your parents about this kind of stuff is like, Hey, I'm just going to take up this now, this, this work, I'm going to do it. And you no longer need to feel guilty that what you did to me was a permanently affected my life in any way, shape or form. So for anybody that has that, and I'm one of them, you know, has that kind of uncomfortable, you know, element with family dynamics of digging into trauma, you know, maybe that's a way for you to think about it. Um, that it's, um, 
you know, you can liberate yourself and liberate them at the same time, you know, from that. Yeah. And I think, you know, a major way that that is always done is through boundaries. Boundaries are compassionate. And, you know, so many people feel that if they have boundaries with a narcissist, then especially a narcissistic parent or grandparent, that they are then somehow standing in judgment. But what you're standing in is in compassion because you're not letting that person continue to do something that for most of them is not at their core values anyway. They wouldn't want to have this result and they're incapable perhaps of seeing what their actions do um, to create that result. And so there are times where hard boundaries may feel as if you're being a judge or judging, but actually what you're doing is protecting you and them from repeating a painful history. Yeah. It's room for potential for a positive, a more positive relationship. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. And you've talked about that before a lot that when you've grown up with narcissistic abuse or a narcissistic dynamic, a parent that may not be, you know, a hundred percent narcissist, but behaved narcissistically at times that as a child in that that household boundaries are violated on a regular basis and learning how to set boundaries is super awkward and uncomfortable and foreign, you know, to be able to do that. But as I've learned and developed, it definitely, oh my gosh, it feels so much better to hold them and then, you know, high five yourself when you've been able to do that. And it does make a lot of difference in your well-being. You know, I mean, Mm -hmm. you don't get as violated anymore and you realize, um, you know, you kind of gain your own sense of power you know, that you didn't grow up with or didn't, or had taken and, you know, from you and stuff. So I appreciate that. Now we, we've talked about for five months, we were doing the math here and actually for everybody that's listening to this, Michelle and I are actually looking at each other for the first time in five months. We've been doing a lot of phone <laughs> conversations, um, but we got the video going today, um, which is great because Michelle does do coaching worldwide. So she can look at you too, if you need some, uh, some assistance from her later. <laughs> yeah. I need not be in the shadows. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> She's a real person. Um, but in the five months that we've talked about it, we introduced the concept of the narcissist narcissistic mother as a type of broken mom. And then we've been drilling down into the different family roles that the children in this family end up either drifting in themselves or being forced into. Um, we started with the, the golden hero chosen child. We moved to the lost child because we didn't want that one to be the last one and forgotten about. Then we went to the mascot and now we're here at the final role, um, which is the scapegoat. And I think that this fits nicely because for me, my experience with scapegoats is I kind of feel like this is the personality of the child that just basically said, screw you, everyone, I'm out of here. And so it kind of feels like a conclusion that we're at the (laughs) mic drop, I'm done. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So, um, so tell us what's the scapegoat and why are we, why are we going to talk about that, that child finally today? The scapegoat is someone who uh, often on the forums, when you get online, you'll see a lot of people saying that they were scapegoated. Uh, that's often someone who is quite vocal because they were in the role of truth teller in their family system. Often they were the ones standing up saying, no, this isn't right, or this feels weird, or trying to set boundaries, or champion, being a champion for another sibling to try to protect an underdog. A lot of times they would fall on their sword. You know, they would be somebody who was uh, trying to rescue someone in the family. They got set up as rescuer, and then they get pointed at as the problem. And so often with scapegoats, uh, you will hear that term probably the most um, talked about, that role talked about. And what I 
really enjoy about uh, scapegoats is they're so sassy and they're fun and they tend to be contrarian. They like to kind of look at things from the outside and always question what's going on, tend to be very creative people. Um, And the price they pay is that sometimes their instincts have been undermined by the narcissistic parent the narcissistic mom ha- may have gaslit you, you know, gaslighting is a process of saying to you what you observe is not real. So um, a classic gaslighting example is you could have a glass of water next to you and say, oh, I'm so glad I have this water. And then the other person can say, there's no water there. And that's the same with, oh, I don't like the way you've treated me. I, I didn't do anything wrong. Or I, I didn't appreciate that you were teasing my younger brother, you know, or uh, that you were talking about the neighbor that way. I'm not talking about the neighbor in any, you know, so there's a lot of denial. And um, then because the, if you if you confront a narcissist, often they're going to confront you. Um, the scapegoat ends up having to do a lot of sword play with the narcissistic parent. And that can be great for the other siblings because then they can get away with murder while the scapegoat is fighting with the parents. So a lot of times the siblings, you know, we're just minors. We're just children. Forgive yourself if you did this to your siblings, but you'll serve up the sibling, you know, the scapegoat. You'll be like, well, I have, all I have to do is get scapegoat going and then I can get away with, you know, anything I want because everybody else is distracted with that behavior. And sometimes then the, the scapegoat gets a little addicted to negative intensity because they feel at least alive, noticed and powerful um, at times in that role. So you can see where that could lead to other difficulties in um, situations where there's authority or groups and how to not carry the the old behaviors from the family into those groups is um, something to be aware of, especially when in work environment, when you're trying to navigate group dynamics and work politics. Mm-hmm. And this is where listening to this piece of it, because you and I have talked about this as well many times. So for anybody that hasn't listened to the other episodes, is that we in certain fi- family dynamics can drift from these roles, you know, or and as we age or the the kind of the landscape of the family changes a little bit, your role kind of shifts with that. And I know that um, I've spoken about this before, especially in the work environment piece of it is um, the you can get triggered really easily by somebody contradicting you or your authority. Or like you said, if you're sensing something that feels like you're being gaslit by like your boss or a coworker, I know. Oh, it uh, does. And that was like my, like my, my Achilles heel, you know, was being um, in places with authority people. And it's not like I was a troublemaker or anything like that, but, you know, because of my own, like, oh, my addiction to that personality that, you know, guided me into business partnerships and personal relationships, naturally, you know, if you have that scapegoat piece of you in there, it's like, if you hit that trigger, it was just like, oh, like instant, you know, fight back and defend and stuff. And that doesn't work in business, you know, it's like, correct and awesome. Yeah, like if you're in a group situation, even like a group um, work uh, assignment in an academic setting, there can be times where you perceive something as unfair in the group and the group will sense, oh, we can get that person to confront the bully or whatever because they they have this uh, 
tendency to do it anyway. So all they need is a little nudge, this little scapegoat. And, you know, you can see this poor little sixth grader championing the good role or the good rule and, you know, taking on a bully when they don't need to. Mm-hmm. So that's interesting because if uh, anybody's listened to the other episodes and we talked about the hero and the golden child, you know, what, what kind of pins in my head is sometimes scapegoat feels a little heroic. Is that, yeah. is that a shared, you know, is that a shared trait or possibly one in the same person at times? It, at times. So sometimes it's the golden that feels heroic and other times it's a scapegoat that feels mm-hmm. heroic. And both of these uh, heroic roles have their cost because whenever you are becoming a hero, you're in a triangle. And that triangle, in, when it's relational, you've got the villain, the victim, and the rescuer. And that's a slippery triangle. So if you come in to rescue someone, you will almost... Um, almost inevitably be pointed to as also the villain eventually, like Mm -hmm. somehow you messed it up. Mm -hmm. And so scapegoats can often get blamed for marital problems, financial problems, stress in the family, health issues. So your father wouldn't have his heart problem if it wasn't for you always arguing, you know, these kinds of statements are made or the marriage will be so much better when you're off to college or you've moved out um, sometimes the scapegoat is asked to move out for the sake of some other sibling. And that sets then them not getting along with a sibling because it's framed as you are the cause of the problem. So we had to remove you to save this other one. And then scapegoats feels like, okay, I'm not as valuable as the other one, or I'm in competition with this other sibling or Sometimes it's the stepfather or stepmother, however the choice was made. Mm-hmm. So it's it's interesting when i listening to you about this. So with a scapegoat having such a, uh, a confrontational personality to it, is there... Is there ever a scapegoat who, and I asked this question, I'm going to ask you this question, like, is there ever a scapegoat? But I think I know an answer to this, where the scapegoat, is just a victim. They're just blamed. They, they aren't a truth teller. They're not going to stand up and, st- you know, and stick up for justice. They're just the pile that everybody dumps all the garbage on top of and, uh, and, and just may not be as heroic or may not be as outgoing. Right. Yeah. So you have some scapegoats that are fighters and they take on the um, shrapnel of life rather early. And a lot of times they actually are by their twenties have worked out a great deal of stuff because they've fought through it. Others are what you're talking about where they kind of collapse inward. They doubt themselves. Um, the gaslighting has caused them to question their self-esteem. So all that, Um, instead of having self-esteem, they have self-blame. And so once the piling on starts to happen, especially if more than the narcissistic parent gangs up on this person, but um, that narcissistic parent also has engaged in getting the siblings or the co-parent, co-caregiver to see this person that way, starts to handle the PR and the extended family or community as, oh, this is just my difficult child or, Mm. well, watch out for that one. And, you know, that's a terrible thing to do to uh, a kid. It's uh, an imbalance of power to have an adult declare that a child has some negative trait. It's, It's incredibly emotionally and intellectually abusive. 
Yeah. When you, when you describe that, what pops into my head is when we experience bullies in the grade schools, you know, and even in high schools and stuff like that. And it, it sounds like what you are really kind of walking through is what home life for those types of kids might in fact actually be like. And I, you know, I've said this too before with people, like I really, if there's anything that I, I, I despise, um, it is watching adults bully children. And you're describing the way that, you know, a way in which that actually happens with them being just blamed at home for everything. And of course, you know, that, that kid reacts, you know, in a yeah. negative way, right? And I think many of us can recall being at a, you know, a family table where you're the visitor and you just see like, why do they keep going at the one kid for everything? Mm-hmm. You see this other kid doing similar things, <laughs> but the one child is getting commented on and corrected and it's, there's gaslighting right there. You know, mm-hmm. one person, the reality is, is that there's uh, the behavior is not single to that person yet. They're being treated as if it is. Right. Because it, it, everything they did is their fault. Um, and so you, you talked about, talk about that self-blame versus self-esteem. Like what's the difference mm-hmm. between self-blaming feelings and just having low self-esteem? Cause I wrote low self-esteem in my notes, but I think that you're what you, maybe you're describing something a little bit deeper than that. Yeah, what's scary about getting blamed and being falsely empowered with all these negative traits, like you've ruined our marriage or you cause us financial problems, you know, to say to a child, to say that to a child when you're an adult, uh, falsely empowers them, makes them feel like they have more control over the situation than they do. And then that means they can blame themselves more for what's going on. They can blame themselves for the broken down car or the gas that ran out, you know, the propane that ran out for the home heat or whatever, because somehow it has to do with them. And that feeds into the way that we grow up and develop as adults anyway. When we go through childhood and especially adolescents, we are egocentric. And one of the things is that um, that helps us with is to break away and think that we know everything. You know, the big joke is I knew everything at 16 and then by 30 I knew nothing. <laughs> um, you know, that's, that's that healthy egocentrism that needs to be guided out. But it can also flip into self-blame and self-loathing because if your environment isn't right and you're egocentric, you can start easily to turn that in on yourself and blame yourself. So if you have a parent adding to that or a a significant um, mentor caregiver, then you can see where the self-blame can um, really pile up. And self-blame always eats at self-esteem and Mm -hmm. self-worth. Self-esteem and self-worth are built by following your values and knowing that you're operating consistent with what you believe are the best actions for you. Kind of like if you're following your own standard operating procedures every day, then your slate is clean. Things might have not have gone perfectly, but you still refer back to these values and say, but I'm a good person. Whereas with self-blame, it's, you know, it's, I'm, I'm bad. If a mistake happens, I'm bad. Mm-hmm. It's not the mistake happened. It's I'm the mistake. Mm. And so that's where you see that dynamic happening between self-esteem and self-blame being uh, so such a downward spiral when the two of those start to uh, get eaten up by each other. Yeah. Now we, we talk about that, uh, you know, we are wired 
you know, as humans to idolize our parents and in particular, like our primary caregiver, because that idolization is what's necessary for us to be receptive and follow everything they do because we're learning as, as we go. And I had seen something out there where um, a comment about the fact that because of that idolization and that just innate, we love our parents despite everything, then when they, they are abusive to us or neglectful or do things like this, we don't reflect it, but we don't turn around and recognize it as abuse to them. We just, and we still continue to love them. We just stop loving ourselves. You know, exactly. through that process. Yeah. That at the time is a coping mechanism that's necessary. You know, you can imagine as we evolved, if, you know, we're coming out of the caves with our families and, you know, that's seven, you disagree with the parents and you just stomp <laughs> off into your <laughs> the mammoth <laughs> pasture. <laughs> And so when you um, are younger, you do defer, you know, if they say this has been bad or I've, I've done this badly, you tend to go, yep, that's me. That's my fault. Or if the atmosphere feels wrong in a room or in a place, you kind of think, hmm, this must have to do with me. There's that egocentricity again. And then as we grow up, we are lucky enough to find mentors that and caregivers that help us see, no, this is where um you end and the world begins and you can control this piece, but you can't control everything. Um, recently I was uh, counseling a, a very high achieving teenager about anxiety. And um, we had to go over the fact that part of uh, being an adult and growing up is that you will disappoint people. You know, mm-hmm. you can't say yes to every opportunity and every date and (laughs) you know there has to be no's also and so living with the fact that you really cannot satisfy everybody all at all times and that you do have healthy limitations is uh, part of that developmental piece now a scapegoat person who's been scapegoated can get trapped in always trying to compensate for being made to feel like things were their fault and so they go through life always trying to overachieve to uh, prove to that initial family system, see, I'm fine, I'm good, I can do this. Mm-hmm. And that can put you in an, at a disadvantage in the work environment if you start to see everybody as competition to prove to the authority figure, I need to prove I'm the best. You can be accused of not being a team player if you're constantly competing to prove you're the best. And so it really, as a scapegoat, um, you're usually a very strong person because you've had to be uh, independent from the system that you grew up with. But at the same time, you have a longing to be in a system and feel that sense of community too. So you have to watch when you're older not to get kind of entrapped in trying to regain that feeling, mm-hmm. you know, that elusive longing that you never got um, satisfied when you're growing up. Yeah. It sounds like too, like the um, possibilities I'm making an assumption here, but you know, if you're have that sense of longing, love addiction might stem from something like that or that, co- that codependencies. Yeah. 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 And so, you know, love addiction is always being attracted to kind of love walking away. You Mm -hmm. know, so if you think of heart energy coming from the front of the person, it's always kind of longing at that back walking away from you. And that person who's walking towards you with the heart, you're kind of like, oh, good. I got that check. And then you're always (laughs) looking over at that one that's kind of walking away. And that, of course, can affect your 
partnering and how soon you make um, a commitment to a life partner, if at all, and how you'll end up co-parenting. And then, of course, if you have children, then how can you stand to have them individuate? <laughs> so individuation is, um, you know, somebody naturally starting to pull away from everything that the parent thinks is good and somebody who has more of a wounding that way is going to have a real hard time allowing uh, and believing their child um, as an individual. They're going to be more protective and out of that protectiveness uh, and fear of abandonment, they're going to want that person to be more of an extension of themselves than just out there individuating in an appropriate way. Oh, interesting. Huh? So, because I can see with the scapegoats, you know, where they're the truth tellers, um, that they're, you know, fighting for a sense of justice, falling on the sword, like you said, you know, kind of sticking up for what they think is right in there. But then there's that tricky balance of also realizing that when you do it, sometimes it alienates you and it alienates yeah. you from the people that you love. And that there's a, I mean, I can just see and feel that back and forth of the pendulum of like, but I can't stand watching something wrong happen. But at the same time, how am I supposed to stick up for myself and not lose everybody around me that I care about and love and swing back and, or, you know, so how does a scapegoat, um, how do, how do scapegoats kind of deal and compensate? What are kind of some of the shrouds and protections they put on themselves when that, that's what they're kind of living in and that, that swinging back and forth? Yeah. So first of all, they have to realize that they are uh, vulnerable to the bidding for attention, but you know, just like their narcissistic parent, they do bid for attention and it's really important to not try to establish your worth every day, every minute of your life that there's a, it, you have to trust that there's a certain worthiness inherent in you, regardless of how much attention you get from someone, how valuable you are to someone and scapegoat is often trying to prove that they are valuable. And it's so painful because it's like you're only as valuable as your last action. So that can certainly lead to, code, lead to codependency. Mm -hmm. So help me. Um, I mean, we talked about this between the, again, the hero, scapegoat, lost child. Is there, are there some similarities between lost and scapegoat? Do we get lost scapegoats out there? Yes. It, scapegoats sometimes need to hide because they can't sometimes stop themselves from trying to, to rescue. Mm -hmm. and stick up for and tell the truth. And sometimes they have to distance themselves from the family because they just can't seem to be there without being the lightning rod drawing all that energy. Mm -hmm. And even sitting in a extended family, you know, just for like a Christmas situation or Hanukkah or a wedding, you know, these situations can feel so uncomfortable to scapegoat when they aren't getting the negative attention because they're waiting for it to happen. Mm -hmm. or they feel like somehow they haven't shown up or that they don't exist. Um, there's a feeling of feeling extremely anxious until there's some sort of intensity. Mm -hmm. So yeah. you can imagine how, especially at a family events where there could be alcohol available or overeating available, <laughs> what people have happen. And so it's no wonder that in January I end up with all these people calling after their holiday visits and, you know, there may be relapses on diets or sobriety because those drivers are very strong in situations like that when you involve the family system and you have these old wounds that you may not be aware of yet. 
Yeah, yeah. And definitely I can imagine when you're in scapegoat mode, that intensity is just always there. Otherwise, there's, you're not getting any attention if it's not yeah. some dramatic thing that's going on, whether you're getting, you know, do scapegoats uh, as children tend to be the, the more uh, extroverted trouble for the parents or the family? I mean, do they evolve into the um, just the low expectation that they're ever going to behave? They're always going to be misbehaving? Is that a real statement? Or well, What's ironic is that you have that, and then you also have the most, quote-unquote, normal kid getting scapegoated too. Mm-hmm. So remember the Adams family? I think maybe that's one, one of the reasons it appealed to so many people is that the one normal girl just was seen as the weirdo. Because then yeah. everybody else is kind of a freak. <laughs> Right. You know, people don't have limbs or they're just hand or they're just hair. You know I mean? There's that one girl that just looks kind of normal and she's kind of seen as like, oh, poor thing. How is she ever going to blend in the world? <laughs> and um, so there are times when that scapegoat is actually going to be the valedictorian at school, the one that's always doing it well. Um, so in the school setting, they may, may be exceptional, but then at home, they're always seen as, you know, the person just who can't listen, who just never can just take, you know, an order and do it or just do it mom's way or do it dad's way. Why do you always have to fight? Why do you always have to bring it up? You know? Mm-hmm. And yet the, the siblings and sometimes the co-parent is um, fueling that scapegoat up with some injustice, you know? Well, don't tell mom, but, you know, it's been a really hard day with her if you, you know, could just not act up while you're home or whatever. And, you know, that's perhaps dad unfairly dumping um, energy on the scapegoat. And then the scapegoat actually gets charged up to want to say something like, why do you always have to talk to dad like that or whatever? And then there they are back in the role. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, um, I, the reason why I said at the beginning of the episode here that I felt like the scapegoat is the, you know, mic drop, I'm out of here type of a person, uh, it comes from, you know, some personal experience in here of, you know, the evolution through life, but finally, you know, hitting 18 years old. And that was where I was at. It was like, I, you know, I can't change the system. So I'm just getting the hell out of the system and I'm, you know, moving on. I'm going to go to school yeah. and then I'm going to move away and stuff and, and go. So, you know, like they said, the screw. There's the exact landscape, like you yeah. said, the shifting landscape. So there you yeah. are in the scapegoat. And then when you finally can leave, you're gone for a good long while. You know, there's yeah, like yeah. one where it's like, you know, the extended family's like, we haven't seen her in six years, you know, since college or whatever. And suddenly you don't like reappear until there's a wedding or, yeah. um, so there's a, a lot of people that handle it that way because they could not win in that system and they were smart enough to know it. They didn't know why. Um, and of course when you're young, you, you constantly question if it's yourself Mm-hmm. You, you go from totally blaming the outside to totally blaming yourself, that pendulum. And so that's where things like cognitive behavioral therapy are helpful with that black and white thinking. Um, it helps you with the thinking distortions. So you can kind of pull those things apart and look at, you know, it really is rarely all your fault or all somebody else's fault. And so what's one small piece you can take when you're feeling totally blaming of somebody else. And also, um, when you're totally blaming yourself, what's one small thing that you didn't have control over? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's about to to try to pull that back in and balance that back mm-hmm. in for start sure. Start to centralize the thinking and get out of extremes. Yeah. Um, 
so we kind of touched on some of them, but what are some of the problems that you'll see? Like, you know, what draws a scapegoat into your office, you know, finally to sit then and, and that, and do they know their scapegoats when they walk in <laughs> or do you get to a say, a lot of times hey. they yeah. don't. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so sometimes I'll have a scapegoat uh, calling everybody in because they've decided they are not inviting so-and-so. So unless everybody comes in before the wedding, you know, and mm-hmm. they'll want to have like a meeting with eight of the family members all at once to pull in, you know, some uh, injustice that they have, believe needs to be resolved before the wedding or things like that. So sometimes the scapegoat can be dramatic and other times the scapegoat doesn't know they're the scapegoat and they get along with everybody in their world other than their family system. And, and then that, is probably the one that has the hardest time recognizing their scapegoated because they kind of look at the rest of their family and the rest of the family might not even be doing that well. And they're doing very well out in the world, but yet they go home uh, to that original family system and they're treated like they are the problem again. Like somehow they have caused people pain um, or held the family back in some way. And, you know, I had, one man say to his family, you know, I'm not a cocaine dealer. I just left <laughs> to go off and go to college. I went out of town for college. That's all I did. But mm-hmm. it seems like when I come back here, everybody's treating me, you know, asking why I've deserted them and, you know, treating me like I've wrecked the family reputation when all I'm not doing is working at the hardware business this four years. <laughs> you know? so sometimes it kind of helps to dig like share the experience outside uh, with somebody not in the family system where you can say it feels like I murdered someone and buried them at home. And every time I come home, people are pointing at the dead body. And I, all I did was marry. (laughs) Right. Or they individuate. And that was somehow resented by the family system. Yeah. Yeah. I know moving out to Seattle from the Midwest, um, I, I kept hearing like, well, you know, when are you coming back? You know, mm. she'll be back soon. And then it was like, you know, a few years went by. I don't think she's coming back. Um, but, <laughs> you know, I, I, I know for myself, you know, I feel like I identify here with scapegoat. I've identified with the, with the hero, not the golden, but the hero child piece of it. And I know for my, and so in my head, I'm sitting here trying to distinguish really between those two because I don't feel that I ever was blamed for everything. I, but I do know that I was a truth teller, you know, like I, I would, you know, I'd let the family flow with something. And then when it got to a place where I was just, okay, no guys, no, 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 I can't do this anymore. You know, um, which as you know, and we've talked about this, that's what sets you up to be the enemy combatant in about every other relationship that you get where you, you know, where you start to point out, like, that's not the way this needs to go. You need to stop, like, stop teasing me, stop hitting him, you know, whatever it is. But at the end of the day, it wasn't like I was, I ever was treated like I was the pariah for being that person. It was just like it, it shocked and awed everybody for a moment. And then there was that sense of still like respect because of the hero pieces of me, you know? So like you talk about the valedictorian as being the weirdo that, you know, and everybody makes fun of or doesn't get or whatever. I, I, I I definitely know that that wasn't the feeling that I'd ever had in there, but I do identify with the, um, you know, when a me comes home, <laughs> you know, it, and, and I have an uncle who's the same way and he and I would both be like the ones in the room. And at some point, yeah. maybe both of us challenging like the way it should be, or I wouldn't right. follow along with the group thing. Cause it's like, I didn't agree with it and stuff. So I'm, I'm trying to sort that out for myself yeah. here. So um, that was a burden and an honor, right? Yeah. Yeah. 
um, you know, the burden is, okay, wait till she comes, comes home. Other people in the family know, all right, we can load you up and then, you know, we'll get some justice going on in this <laughs> or, you know, wait till we hear what she has to say. Yeah. Or I don't need to confront anybody because I know she will. Yeah. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And so when you're trying to reconcile the roles, which I think is really helpful for people to hear, because I know people try to search through and try to figure out what role were they most usually dominant in. You know, of mm-hmm. course they do shift. Um, and you identify very strongly with the scapegoat role. Um, what other pieces do you wonder, oh, where did that fit in with scapegoat? Is that what you're kind of exploring there? Yeah. 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 So that yeah, so that's the pieces of it of um what parts of it were the were the scapegoating parts. And I guess the because I have a really strong sense of justice. I mean, it's super strong mm-hmm. right now for me. And I and you know, and that's usually when we talked about the business piece of it was being involved in some sort of um, a, a professional. And I see it, in my son. I was just talking about this today too. That hypocrisy is a trigger. So if somebody in an authority mm-hmm. position begins to behave manipulative, you know, manipulatively, um, or mm-hmm. is uh, you know hypocritical, or just you know has some part of it that is just injustice, then when they want to assert their authority on me, I won't have it. I, I, you know, if you have some sort of moral leaning that isn't, that isn't good, you know, there's a, you know, you're a liar, you do things for it. I don't care if you're my boss. I don't care if you're, you know, a partner or something like that. I will stand up against it to the point of it just exploding, you know, in everybody's face and stuff. Mm -hmm. And that's why I'm wondering, like, is that, is that the scapegoat piece of it? This sense? Yeah, it is. Yeah. Because it's the, it's the part that you're willing to go to if it takes an explosion, I'll do the explosion. Yeah, you know? totally. Whereas yeah. a golden child would have had like the way to manipulate everybody into <laughs> yeah. justice in a good, you know, in the smooth way that doesn't cost them. The scapegoat, the del- uh, the way you can tell the difference between hero and scapegoat is right there at the price you pay. So if you're hero child, it's like, oh, you know, listen to so-and-so. She really helps us think better or makes us better people. Uh, but scapegoat is like, oh, you know, it's not what you say, but how you say it. <laughs> yeah. You know, like, yeah, you're right, but you didn't need to do it that way. You know, you need to blow up that way. You didn't have to bring that intensity, that tone, these words, even though the general point was correct. So it's the intensity that you could look at and go, hmm, yep, that's scapegoat. Ah, interesting. That's an enlightening. I love these with you because it's like every time for me personally, and hopefully I get, you know, other people do see this recognition in there, but um, yeah, I mean, I was that person that if, um, you know, had a, a family member that would make a racist comment, we'd be in a crowded room full of people. And I guarantee, I mean, I did this, I would be the one person that stood up, looked at them and said, you know, would, I mean, I just, again, my strong sense of justice has always been there to, to take it, you know, and yes, you know, do it at any cost. And, and it hurt me at yes, times because <laughs> it does. Yeah. And I think so much of the archetype of Joan of Arc with scapegoat, because here she was burnt at the stake and then later she was sainted. <laughs> Same behavior. <laughs> right. Right. So, you know, there's you can see the heroic part of it and also the scapegoated part of it right there. So if you feel a little confused sometime, you're in a good company. Yeah. <laughs> Jeez. I don't want to be burned at the stake though. So yeah. Um. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah. So what are some of the other, um, some of the other problems you might have a, a scapegoat? Cause I know you coach too. And, and I sit there and I think like, for me, a, the, you know, a benefit would have been to have known that this, that was that sense of justice was triggered by, you know, injustices around me, even if they were in professional yes. settings and stuff like that. So how would you coach a scapegoat? I'm not asking for myself cause I'm trying to get a free session here with you. Um, but <laughs> you know, when, when you, well. when somebody is held that way, <laughs> well, to be honest, I, I, I like the fact that I stand for justice. That's not a bad thing yes. to me, right? It is not a bad thing. And so with scapegoat, I, what's very important to me when I coach them is that they don't lose their sense of identity. I don't want to change them out of anything that they are. I want to give them more choices mm-hmm. when they do decide to champion something. And often scapegoats will call me in order to deal with upcoming uh, perceived potentials for confrontation with family, especially when the family groups together for a birth or, you know, whatever event, um, or you're coming to to home turf or they're coming to your home turf. That's where the scapegoat often needs help in revealing their truth in, in a way that does not set them up to feel apologetic later about how they did it. That robs them of their message. And I hate seeing that happen to such a, valiant personality type. Mm -hmm. So um, it's just helping them take that beautiful flame of truth and not accidentally singeing their own hair with it. (laughs) (laughs) Burning the eyebrows off. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, because usually everything they're saying and all their instincts are right on the money. It's, it's actually, a matter of delivery often mm-hmm. and so if we can help with the delivery so that you can retain more power um, and speak into other people's ability to listen mm-hmm. um, then then the scapegoat self-esteem tends to raise and sense of efficacy mm-hmm. and so that's exciting to see in people yeah. And I can see too, uh, the, you know, in fact, my, my chest was tightening up as we're talking about this because of the, like the comment, not in a bad way, but just like I, the, you know, the rise of like, oh my gosh, like I'm feeling this, like I get this piece of it. Um, you know, how do you, uh, how do you help them through the, the things that might trigger? Cause intensity is a thing yes. and the intensity flares up sometimes in really inappropriate situations, you know, where a person offers and this, you know, this actually happens. So I sit with this quite a bit still, even though I, you know, I do therapy. This is just how hard it is. But, you know, somebody made a comment to me, you know, not being critical, not being anything. And, and most of the time I actually do receive feedback. And I sometimes, and in fact, I just talked to somebody today. I said, I'm going to apologize in advance. If I, if I feel, if I come off defensive, just like instantly, but I do love feedback. I do want to grow. I do want to be better here, but I do know sometimes, I don't know why, you know, that little flare will come up and I'll, you know, um, uh, I might feel like defensive about it. And that feels like the scapegoat piece of it. And it probably, it, it matters who I'm talking to on whether or not it flares up or not. Oh, but absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I know that for me, again, I share this and, you know, people do know that I'm not perfect. That's why I do a show called one broken mom. Um, but sometimes it was, it was, <laughs> there not, was one perfect mom. <laughs> right. I don't think anybody would listen. <laughs> um, yeah, nobody. <laughs> right. Like I don't, I can't identify with that. Um, but I, I do know that from that professional standpoint that it wasn't fair, you know, that sense of justice was misplaced. I wasn't really fighting anything. It was a fight that was inside my own head or it was a fight that was triggered by, you know, the, not, and not in my own head, but again, 
the confrontation caused the intensity to rise. Then I perceived danger that I don't think was entirely there. And, um, and then, and it turned into a problem. Like I, I have ran into people where there, there has been a moral question, but I do have one gentleman in particular and I was able to really, I totally respected the guy, but we just got to that place where we both were kind of getting into each other. And it was, un, I know it was unfair. It was unfair for me to have a sense of justice against it when I should have been able to pull myself back in and, um, and talk with them and restrain it. But uh, that intense trigger is really, really strong. Like, how do you bring somebody off of the cliff or, you know, what are strategies for somebody to, that wants to keep fighting the world and they don't really have to? Yep. So excellent question. And it's uh, one simple way that you can start getting mastery over this is to grade your response one, two, three, you know, it's three different levels. Three is you're already doing and saying things that you are not in control of or would regret later. Two is you feel like that's possible. And one is you're totally calm and you can field things from 20 miles away. You can be very strategic. You want to be in a one, especially when you're hearing feedback. And yet rarely do people give you the room to get ready for feedback. <laughs> and so it's very important once you, you kind of start to assess, okay, this is an income Mm-hmm. And I need to, you know, hear this and I want to receive the grain of truth that might be in this so that I can be a better person or a more effective uh, worker, whatever it is. And so that's where you want to stay in that one place. If you have somebody storming into your office, your bedroom, whatever, and that immediately makes you feel cornered, you're maybe already at a two because instinctively as an animal, we do not want to have our exits cut off then say, oh, I, th- I hear you have something you want to say to me or this is an interesting discussion. Let's go out into a living room. So you get down to a one. So first get your physiology in place and make sure you're not in fight, flight, or freeze because we often were in that emotional posture in a narcissistic family system mm-hmm. or any kind of tumultuous system. And so we have to make sure our arousal system is down and that deep breathing we can do Uh, four square breathing where you breathe in four, hold four, breathe out four. Some people want to do that as a five, five, seven, whatever you need to do to get your breathing right. That is the most effective thing you can do. And it's portable. If you're in the room, your breath is in the room. (laughs) (laughs) You you can use like calming music, (laughs) the right temperature, essential oils, but you may not have that access, but thankfully you always have access to breath. So do your breath work before you reply. Allow yourself to, to buy yourself time and say, I want to repeat this back to you so I make sure I'm hearing you correctly. And say, okay, I hear that you're saying that when I did X, uh, you think it would have been better if I had done Y first. Uh, is that correct? Yes. Okay. Am I missing anything? And you let them unpack and unpack and unpack. And um, just that starts calming you down. Imagine they brought in a suitcase of feedback and you're making sure they've unpacked their carry-on and you're wading through it instead of trying to organize it while they're talking Mm -hmm. or trying to close it and put it in the overhead bin while they're talking. (laughs) It's going to set you up to have problems. So that one to three system works really well, like, Let's say you got an email and you're already at a two. Somebody wants to talk to you about something. Somebody just called you. Let the call go until you're back at a one. Then call back 
but don't take the call when you're already at a two because you can bump up really fast to that three. Mm -hmm. So try to be operating out of a one and always trying to get back down to a one. Mm -hmm. That's great. And that's great advice. I, you know, and I want to touch on that for some, you know, for anybody that's listening to this to, uh, you know, why, why this might actually happen. Because like we said, the scapegoat is living, in a, in a space of really defending their position, defending someone else's position. And, it, you know, if that's a constant for you or having to assert your position, ass- assertion is another piece of that too. I feel like um, yeah. if, you're, if you're being disregarded or, you know, you're trying to be boxed or bubbled in, you know, this scapegoat personality sounds like, you know, I'm raising my hand here where you have to finally just, you're fed up to the point that you have to rise up and go, no, you need to see me. You need to understand this is who I am or whatever it is. And that on a regular basis means you go off into the world with that, you know, intensity. that intensity in there. Absolutely. And so I want other people that are thinking, again, this isn't the Ami show here, but if that, if that feels familiar to you, that you, you have to raise the, the level of the room in order to feel like you finally are breaking through too many times, you know, not all the time. And I don't, you know, like I said, I don't, people that know me are going to go, you've done that before. And I'm like, oh yeah, I've done this before. Um, so I, I, but I know that I still get, you know, there are those triggers in there with certain types of people, which probably goes back to if they are more narcissistic or, you know, mm-hmm. have that, have that in, uh, more of their needs kind of, you, you feel that, right. And I know you have some experience with this family dynamic as well, that our radars sense that out of other people that, it, that they have the capabilities at time to right. do that. So that's what I'm talking about is sometimes when we get in those situations that that little roll pops its ugly little head up and can cause problems mm-hmm. for us without it. Sometimes you can feel it prickly. Like I really know it's over if I feel hot, hot little pins in my face. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> I know I'm at a three. <laughs> and so that's what I mean by getting in touch with your physiology. For some people, it's they feel hot or they notice they're clenching their hands or their jaw or they've stopped breathing or they're shallow breathing. So just get aware of where you're at. Yeah. And um, what you've touched upon just in the last comment too was scapegoats are, are warriors. They've come out of a war often. And so there's a traumatic response to a lot of things that, might not be as bad as the narcissistic family system, but it reminds you of it. And already that physiological response is in fight, flight, freeze. And usually it's fight with a scapegoat. Yeah. And that you just hit it because I have made a lot of reflections for me. Like I, I joked, I did an interview the other day for a show called Real Men Feel. And I, you know, I said, I, I said coming into 2019, which is when we're recording this, that my operative word for the year is anger and rage. Like that's the part of, and I don't mean that in like a really grumpy negative sort of way, but it's, it's the, it's the unconnected part that I, I really do want to get. And you, you saying that is how that has felt. Like that's the last piece for me that I, you know, I feel like I've taken care of six-year-old and me and, you know, I've taken care of middle school and me, but it's the 18-year-old, I'm out of here, you know, soldier woman that is still in there that she's been dodging it, you know, around there and getting to that piece of it. And I'm glad you said, and like I said, I'm saying it again, I'm glad you said anger because that is a, it's a hard emotion, I think, for people to, tackle and acknowledge because I believe it's the emotion that a lot of us have told has been it's you know you can't be mad don't be mad being mad is a bad thing and we we can't honor anger 
you know, around right. us and stuff because it's super uncomfortable. Right. And so. anger is a great fuel. It simply needs to be used for the right things in your life. So sometimes I have people so frustrated when they feel their anger in coaching. And I say, you know, that's actually a really important tank you just tapped into right there. <laughs> Furthermore, anxiety is often anger being ignored. Mm -hmm. So often um, people will feel so anxious and panicky and uh, have a loss of concentration because they're actually suppressing this anger. And um, anger to them means I will be further ostracized because every time I was angry in my family, I was seen as monstrous. Mm -hmm. And often I might have acted monstrously because I was pushed to a level of gaslighting that made me so frustrated. It's crazy making, you know, is what these um, clients will tell me. And so always be aware that that was just a, a learned, learned response to a very extreme situation and that anger in and of itself is extremely important. It is the thing that allows us to assert our boundaries in a nice, polite way because we don't want to sit with it. Once you get in touch with your anger, you're like, oh, either you're going to end up dealing with my discomfort or I am. So I'm just going to say, please stop stepping on my toe. <laughs> Instead of just going, I don't want to deal with it, to put up with it. You know, maybe she'll move. Maybe she'll get off my toe. You know, it, it's just so much better to put it into assertiveness calmly instead of waiting for a boiling point. Because so many scapegoats will condemn themselves for feeling any anger because they were um, seen as the angry child when they were younger. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I, 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 and for people that were not that way, because I wasn't seen as an angry child, I just became very obedient to hold it back because the blowback was... You uh, to overcompliance? Yeah. I went over into overcompliance, definitely, and just mm -hmm. kind of like bottled it all, all up until, again, until I got to be a teenager and I was just like, F this, I'm done. Like I just, mm -hmm. and you know, and you, that's where it came out but even then but yeah as a kid nobody would say I was an angry child I was an overly compliant but just angry inside because I couldn't do what I really wanted to do and then as I got older I found myself having the ability to finally you know again start to move into uh the, again the more the truth yeah. teller phase so and just then, see it as a water flow and it's simply a need, you know, a, a need to channel it. And for some reason, uh, the messages in your family were, damn it up, you know, don't have it be coming down over here. But there was no um, skill taught to you about how to uh, channel that in the way, the direction where it would be useful mm -hmm. or to redirect um, or to temper it. It was just, you were just told, shut it off. And that doesn't work with water. Water will always win. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, the force of water will always win. And so it's good to look at your anger just as a water flow and you have to learn how to ride it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. Um, I want to give you a chance because um, first of all, I actually, am, I'm glad the timing worked out with scapegoat being the last one, because I, I think that this was, this was cool. Like, you know, for me personally, I'm not trying to be selfish here, but you know, that, that happens. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but anyways, but in all sincerity, I think this is a good way of kind of going through those roles, but you've been working on a book and I really want to give you a chance to talk about that because you and I will be talking about other topics, but right now we've had to schedule around some of the editing. So tell everybody about the book that you're actually writing. Yeah. So, you know, the book that I'm working on is called The Narcissistic Mother. That's good. And <laughs> ironically, <laughs> Um, and it deals, uh, gives a chapter to each role and it also gives a chapter to, uh, caring for aging parents throughout the lifespan, 
when you deal with narcissistic family systems? And then how does this show up in real life in the present as an adult? And what can you do about it? So uh, the seeds were planted from the narcissistic family system. And then now as an adult, there's going to be these little patches of immature behavior that you're like, whoa, where did that come from? Where did that intensity come from? And so looking at um, how to optimize your life, uh, knowing where you came from and what the typical pitfalls are, uh, how can we use those things for strength and fuel and wisdom and um, accomplishing your goals? So that's where we're at. And that, I would think that, um, you know, we're in the final two chapters. I say we because I always make my partner read <laughs> the chapters as they're done. Um, so, you know, June 1st is when it'll be ready. So that's not that far away. No, that's not. That's awesome. Um, so scapegoat, do you feel like we got everything that we need? Because I don't want to dismiss our episode today without making sure that we, we touched on this. Like I said, this kind of is like the final nail in this whole family piece of this. Um, is there... Yeah. Yeah. Well, I will say often scapegoats are the first ones to get help. Often they are the ones sent to therapy in high school. <laughs> um, sometimes even treatment centers, things like that, because their behavior is seen as this extreme. Where is this coming from? Everybody else is so well behaved and they're really expressing the frustration for the entire family. Mm -hmm. um, and so they're carrying all of that. Um, there was a great old movie with, I forgot the name of the person, but as me familia. And it was such a good movie about um, family roles. And there was a scapegoat in that movie. And what I can say about the scapegoat is they're the strongest people I know. Mm -hmm. And I love them very much. I think that um, it is a tragic thing to be seen as a problem when you simply have a lot of passion and need to know how to how to channel it. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. That's, I think we're going to end it right there with that, Michelle, because that's a beautiful sentiment for anybody out there. So Michelle, I appreciate you so much. I know I've told you that so many times and now I can actually say it to your face because I'm looking at you right now, but it's been a blessing to have gotten to know you over the last several months doing this. I'm, I know I'm grateful for this. I know the people that listen to the show have been really grateful to hear you help us through these things and stuff. And so thank you again so much for taking the time to be able to do this with me and, and to do this other episode. So you're so welcome. And you're such a brave person doing this i'm really excited um always to hear about how your audience is reacting to things so congratulations thank you thank you so much thank you for listening to one broken mom you can find podcast notes on my website at amiquiraconi.com and there i'll provide all links to all of the resources that we mentioned on the episode also if you have any questions comments or ideas for other episodes feel free to send me an email and if you are interested in sponsoring the show i'd love to have you be a part of the team Finally, if you like what you hear, please share the podcast and leave a review so that others can find it. We are all here to get better together. I am the host, Ami Kurakoni, and as always, I am super grateful to have you as a listener. Until next time, have a great day.